Hello. Now, in this episode, I'm heading back to the USA and I'm sharing two incredible projects where gardens and landscape were designed in an incredibly innovative way. I think that they're really going to help you with ideas for your home, whether you're renovating or building, and whatever the size of your project. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building, or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together, we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now, before I get stuck into today's podcast, I wanted to quickly mention that if you're listening to this on the day of its release, so the 7th of August, uh, then this is the last day that you can join How to Get It Right in Your Reno or New Home. So this is my six-week online course that gets you ready for your renovation or building project. Now, this will be the last live round that I'm running for 2018. So don't miss the chance to get guidance for your project, get your questions answered and kick off your project in the best possible way. Even if you're working with a designer, now's the time to be sure that you're really getting your design right. So if you head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right now, then you can find out more information. You can join and not miss out. And I'll pop that link in the show notes. So now let's get on with the episode. Now, as I've previously mentioned on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, I traveled to the States in June and part of the trip was attending the American Institute of Architects National Conference in New York. And whilst I was at the conference, I was fortunate uh, to do an organized tour of the High Line. So the High Line is basically a park that sits 30 feet or 10 meters in the air, but it's actually a repurposed railway line. And it has this fascinating history. The The park itself or the High Line is 1.45 miles or 2.33 kilometres long. And the first section of it was opened in 2009. And then subsequent sections have been opened and work continues on the High Line today as it connects through to the Javits Centre, which is actually a huge conference centre. And that's where the conference that I attended was actually based. Now, why am I talking about this project? Why am I talking to you about a repurposed railway line that's a park when we're thinking about home renovating and building? Well, I actually think that the High Line is amazing as a space and experience. And when you think about the fact that it's basically an elevated walkway that that winds its way through a part of Manhattan, it gets around seven million visitors per year and it's completely reinvigorated that part of Manhattan and as a landscape design project has won a huge amount of awards. You know linear parks like this they're actually quite unusual. When you think of a parkland you often think of you know larger spaces where people can gather and play and have casual sports and they can run the dog and have picnics and all those types of things and there's large areas of grass where you can lie about and I know that in Australia and in other parts around the world you know we've got lots of walkways that are generally created along say the edge of waterways that will give public access to those areas but those walkways aren't really considered parks uh, you know and and they're rarely a destination that you actually go to sit and sort of stay and be for a while you're generally moving from one place to another and traveling along those areas to get you know benefit from the view Now, people do walk the High Line and they use it as a connection between areas. However, it's sitting over roads and footpaths that do the same thing. 
And so the High Line's a very different experience. And, you know, it's really a destination. It's a place where people go to meet, to sit, to gather, to walk. And it's an incredible example of how something that was not only disused, but actually an eyesore, an old piece of infrastructure that was wasting away that people wanted to get rid of, how it's been completely renovated into this valuable asset for New Yorkers and visitors alike, and what it's done for the areas around it as a result. Now, when we think about this in relation to your home, well, I'd love to tell you some more about the history of the High Line, and then I'm actually going to share some tips with you about how its design can relate to your home and its landscape and its gardens. And what I'm ultimately hoping to show you is that renovating and building design inspiration, the ideas are everywhere. If you can actually keep your eyes open to see them. So in fact, some of the best ideas, the most new and the interesting ones that we see in homes, they come from relating design ideas from larger, more public spaces and, you know, different kinds of buildings and projects. All right. So stay tuned and we'll, we'll go through those tips. Now, who actually was our guide for the High Line? Well, I want you to meet friends of the High Line. We were fortunate to be accompanied by a volunteer guide on our tour who's from an organisation called Friends of the High Line. And Friends of the High Line is a non-profit caretaker of the High Line. So, you know, on their website, and, and our guide actually explained this, Friends of the High Line actually raises 98% of the High Line's annual budget for maintenance and, you know, keeping it open and those types of things. So the City of New York only pays for 2% and Friends of the High Line pays for 98%. The High Line is actually owned by the City of New York uh, and it's a public park that's maintained and operated by Friends of the High Line. Look, our guide was this brilliant, clever man named Jeffrey Yablonka. And, you know, as I said, the guides are volunteers and, and they're passionate people that, and they love that the High Line has, you know, a treasured place in New York's culture and fabric. And Jeffrey was a treasure trove of information and knowledge on the project. You know, he took particular care given that he was guiding a, a group of architects uh, and he really tailored the tour to us to point out some amazing details and give us incredible intel as we walked along the length of the High Line together and I think we walked it took us about three hours to walk it and it's only 2.33 kilometers long so you can imagine how much conversation we were having as we went. Now Jeffrey told us that back in the 19th century the Hudson River which is actually the river that runs along the alongside Manhattan that was how goods were transported into Manhattan and then they were actually distributed across the country via rail. Now the trains at that point they were located at street level Uh, there was a big train station at Tribeca. And so you've got a picture that the southern end of, of, you know, of this of this area, it was a heavily industrialised area where there was loads of manufacturing and processing happening. So goods would come in on the Hudson, they would get processed there, and then they would get transported out by rail. Now, these trains travelled overground at about eight miles per hour. That's only about 12.8 kilometres per hour. And you know, if you know anything about New York, it's built on landfill and reclaimed land. So back then it wasn't possible to tunnel underground. And so these trains would travel overground at, you know, almost 13 kilometres per hour. People thought that they could outrun the trains and which they couldn't always, they'd misjudge them. And so unfortunately, there were lots of deaths as a result of people getting hit by trains. And Jeffrey actually told us that 10th Avenue uh, was called Death Avenue because of this. Now, in the early 1900s, a decision was made to rebuild the railway line as an elevated structure. So basically elevating the railway line 30 feet or 10 metres 
into the air to try and deal with this fact that it was becoming such a hazard for people. And it was intended that it would then be able to run between the buildings and so that goods could actually be loaded directly on and off the train into the buildings where goods were being processed and manufactured. So in 1929, the approval was given to build what was then known as the West Side Line. And it was actually 15 miles long. So it's now 1.45 miles. Back then it was 15 miles long. And it's a $150 million budget at the time now equates to $3 billion in today's money. So if you remember history, 1929, you know, you know that this was around the time of the Depression. And so to make a big capital expenditure like that and create a big capital project that was going to give people employment and be able to obviously generate the need for manufacturing and processing, this was a really big deal. And so 650 buildings were torn down to make way for the West Side Line and in 1934 it was opened. Over the decades, though, as trade changed and, you know, more and more went by sea and air rather than rail, the rail line was, of course, used less and less. And in 1960, the south part of it was demolished and the land was actually sold. And then in 1980, the last shipment occurred and Geoffrey told us it was three boxcars full of frozen turkeys. Now, after that point of that last line running, the West Side Line, it became this abandoned ruin. So railway lines sitting up in the air, full of graffiti, rubbish, and it was somewhere where homeless people lived. You know, getting up to it was actually quite difficult. Um, one of the members of our tour group, he talked about remembering as an architectural student back at that time, and he worked nearby and he was told about a special point at 23rd Street that you could get access onto the to the railway line and he used to go and check things out there. But the neighbourhood was considered generally pretty dangerous and and, um, and not a great place to be. Now, as is the way with these things throughout the 1980s and 1990s, you know, developers in the community wanted to tear it down. It was an eyesore and it was just in the way. And in 1999, a community board meeting was held to determine the West Side Line's future. And two men just happened to be sitting side by side. It was Joshua David and Robert Hammond. And they both wanted to see the railway line kept and restored into something that they could actually add value to the area and, and, and become, an, you know, an an interesting place to be. And the, the meeting of those two men actually became a partnership that grew then into the Friends of the High Line. And that started the whole ball rolling on determining the future for this railway line. You know, ultimately it's this partnership and then the support and the funding that they gathered that then created the incredible parkland that's there today. Now, given that meeting was in 1999 and the first section of the High Line didn't open until 2009, you know, so 20 years later, you can actually imagine how much of the story I'm not covering in the podcast, you know, but I'll pop some resources in the show notes uh, if you'd like to check out more and so that you can learn about uh, more about the High Line's history and how it was designed. You know, there were design competitions, there were lots of alternative ideas and as you can imagine, there was also the need for the rallying of public support and political support and donations and benefactors. What I loved though, and, you know, this is something that Jeffrey pointed out to us was, you know, as a disused railway line, it was an eyesore, it was derelict, it was, you know, sitting up there just basically abandoned. Trees and plants were still growing on it, you know, there was, and they were elevated 10 metres in the air and there was nature growing on this disused railway line. And so this idea of this self-seeding garden was actually something that gained momentum as an idea through those years and, and resulted in what we have today in the High Line as an urban park. 
The other thing that I really loved hearing about was that the design brief for the Highline was this, keep it simple, keep it slow, keep it quiet and keep it wild. I just, uh, I just, I mean, that's just a gorgeous brief, isn't it? And I'm actually wondering, you know, could you write a brief for your home like that? You know, it really establishes some, some very strong themes about how you want the space to feel and to function. Now, the finished Highline design, it's a collaboration between James Corner Field Operations. They were the project lead, Dilla Scofidio and Renfro, and then Piet Aldoff. And I'm probably mispronouncing Piet's surname. Now, in terms of how plants grow there now, and this is something that's really interesting to think about if you are thinking of doing elevated gardens. Lots of people I'm talking to these days are wanting to look at roof gardens or terrace gardens. You know, up up at the High Line, there's only around 18 inches of soil, which is about half a metre. So there's actually not a lot of soil. And that that's for most of the planting through the High Line. And then uh, you get double that where there's the taller birch and maple trees. And they're very, I mean, they're established trees. So, you know, you're getting sort of a metre of dirt where they are. Now, there's 500 species of plants. Most of them are either indigenous to the area or indigenous to USA. And they're specifically chosen for their durability because uh, you can imagine it. They're exposed and they're handling sort of quite wide ranges of temperature. Now, okay, let's get to how this relates to your home. So I've got a couple of ideas that I want to share with you to think about, inspired by the design of the Highline, because I saw them so beautifully expressed there. And I really think that they can be translated to your home's design, whether you're renovating or building. Now, the first is how the Highline remembers its history. And there's lots of examples of this in the Highline. One that I particularly loved was the the use of spurs. And so what the spurs are, they're these projected spaces that peel off the high line itself. So you've got the main high line, the railway line rolling through, and then there's sort of these little projections that, you know, will will peel off the the main pathway. And they'll be where a seating area is located. You know, it might be a, a platform that's sort of a viewing platform, or it could be an area of specially designed gardens or an artwork. What these spurs are remembering is actually where trains peeled off the main line and then entered into buildings to have their goods loaded and unloaded. And I just love that this memory of these spurs and how the railway line was originally used is still so evident in the way that the design looks now. Now, of course, the railway line itself is visible throughout the High Line. It weaves in and out of planted uh, areas and hardscape areas, depending on how the design's been handled at that point. And to achieve this, they actually marked the entire original railway line with GPS locations uh, before they removed them. And then they removed them and they remediated. They had to remove a lot of lead and those types of things from the structure. And then they, of course, constructed the landscape and all of the design and hardscape and planting. And then the railway line was reinstalled back into exactly the location it had originally been. You'll see that there's railway sleepers that march their way through the High Line as well. Look, there's no mistaking the historic memory of what this structure once was. And it's an incredibly important part of storytelling in this space and place. Now, if you're renovating an old home, I'd love you to think about how you can look at the historic elements of your existing home to help with enhancing the design work that you're doing. You know, what story can you tell to really enrich your home's feeling and memory? 
it can be challenging to do this because it often gets expensive to retain things for reuse or to get builders to work with old materials and elements. You know, it's always cheaper just to bowl it all over and start again. But I want you to think differently about this. You know, for example, one of um, my Your Reno Roadmap members, she actually shared the other day, she's got this fantastic copper curtain pelmet. I'm not sure when it's from, but it's this really quirky little feature in her home that they really love. And they're building new, so they're actually demolishing the house and they're going to build a new one. But she particularly wants to, she's looking for ideas about how she can repurpose this copper pelmet because they've always loved it. So, you know, I, I've seen other homeowners, they've found old timber and they've turned that into a piece of furniture, so a dining table or a coffee table. So they have the memory of the original house around them all the time. Um, someone recently told me that they couldn't get sandstone from their original house off their property. They just couldn't get somebody to come and move it. And so they're now using it in, in garden edging around the garden. You know, there's lots of ways that this can work. Now, if you're building new or you're renovating in an area that has history, uh, has you know that the it's in an older suburb, have a look at what you can find out about the actual area to bring meaning and story to your home. There was a house that we renovated where, when I started to find out about the history of the area and the suburb, uh, I could find I could see that where the original home that had had the big large estate had been located, and where our home was was actually part of the original orchard for the the main home. So, um, and the street was actually called Grove. It wasn't called a street. It was called Grove. And so the privacy screens that I needed to design for and include in the home, I didn't just get standard ones. I found a pattern that had a leaf pattern through it and I just customised it slightly and, um, and brought this into the design and the character of the home to remember the site as an orchard, you know, and... And so this was a way that we brought the story into the home's design and materials. You know, can history and story inspire the design and the choices that you're making for your home? Have a think about it, okay? Now, the second idea was actually looking at the small things and how well they work to create intimacy and relaxation in the High Line. Now, on the High Line, there's only a small patch of grass, just one area. And every time I walked past it, and I went on the High Line a few times during my visit, both during the day and in the evening, there were people lying on it. Jeffrey, our guide, actually told us that it was a specific design request when they were doing community engagement meetings. They wanted an area of grass. And it's, you know, grass is like nature's carpet, isn't it? It immediately invites sitting and lounging and lying about. And, you know, I think of those European plazas where they're all paved and people still find a way to lie about them. You know, it's never quite the same as having a patch of grass. Um, But the thing at the highlight, it's only a little patch. As we design homes for more compact sites, you know, we often give away this idea of having grass because we don't think we've got enough space to make it worthwhile. It requires maintenance. It means that you might need to have a lawnmower and that just seems ludicrous for a handkerchief of grass. You know, some people then put synthetic grass in their home as an alternative. It's not quite the same, but you can actually now buy a lot of no-mow natural grasses. They're still lovely to lie on. Uh, and walk on as an alternative to turf and they don't need the maintenance that turf needs. So if you if you're designing for a compact area and you're wanting that type of feel, you know, explore your options because if you do want to create that patch of grassy, you know, area that you can lie on and enjoy, there's lots of choices available to you now, okay? Now, other small things that occurred on the Highline were the seating areas. So the space, you know, as an urban park, it's basically a walkway, but there were different ways that we use to design to actually invite you to sit down um you know it might be that there was park benches immediately alongside the walkway 
or there was a spur that went out and it had a you know a seating area. There was even a couple of areas of stepped seating or amphitheater style seating um, that was designed in different ways in different locations. Now these elements they actually act as destinations. They really invite you to stop walking and to sit and experience them, you know, to pause and enjoy the area that you're in, to notice the details, to look at the scenery and slow down. There was even one point where the guide, Jeffrey, pointed out to us, if you sit there, you'll actually see that you can see the Statue of Liberty. And it had not occurred to anyone that that was actually visible from where we were. You know, given how fast a city New York is and the scale of the High Line as a structure, the sheer number of people that use the High Line each year, these elements, they were actually quite small and yet they were so dramatic in what they offered in relaxing the space and how everybody felt in it. There was this beautiful intimacy on the High Line with how these smaller elements were handled and they often enabled you to pull away from the hustle and bustle of the main walkway and to enjoy that specially framed view or outlook. Now, I think that when we start planning our future homes, you know, and we think about the design for both inside and outside, we think that things have to be big or dramatic in order to make a meaningful statement. Yet, you know, what small statements, what small spaces and small gestures can you create and design into your home? could be as simple that you widen your hallway at a certain point so that there's enough room to put a seat or a bench so that you've actually got somewhere to sit and take your shoes off before you, you know, come in the house or before you put them back on to head out the door. It could be that you've got a reading nook that captures a great view into your garden. You know, window seats are awesome for this. They don't take up a lot of floor space, but they literally invite you to sit rest, enjoy the sun, enjoy that connection with outside and that will bring pause to your day, it will slow things down and enable relaxation. You know, and it could be as simple as just providing a place for a comfy chair in the corner that gets some sunlight and has a gorgeous view. When you think about it, our homes are probably the most intimate buildings that we'll occupy on a daily basis. We don't share them with everyone, do we? So creating that feeling of intimacy can assist with your home feeling more yours and private as well. So an example of creating intimacy that, you know, I like to encourage people to think about is how will you create space to display your family photographs, for example? You know, we often get caught up in this whole indoor-outdoor relationship and lots of glass for natural light and we don't actually leave any wall space behind to, you know, make places for our arts and for our artworks and our photographs. So, you know, but there's nothing like being able to walk past a wall of memories in your home every day and putting it somewhere where it's not hidden away, but friends and guests who come to see it you know that it really establishes both for us our sense of place and also for them that sense of connection with us and our home as well so that they feel really welcome and relaxed and invited as well so when you're thinking of your home don't always think about how to make things bigger or more spacious or grander or better fitted out think about how small gestures can create impact as well and how small spaces can provide intimacy and a lovely feel for your home. Now, as you can gather, I could probably keep talking about the High Line for ages. Um, honestly, if you get to visit Manhattan, make sure you put a few hours aside to walk the High Line. Better yet, book a tour with friends of the High Line. The paid tours uh, that are organised, you know, they're, the, they're a way that the, high, the friends of the High Line raise funds to maintain the High Line. So it's really worthwhile. The tour guides are incredible incredibly knowledgeable and I want to extend a special thank you to our guide Jeffrey Yablonka who was enthusiastic 
you know, intelligent, passionate, and he was also very, very patient with all of my questions. <laughs> all right. So the next project I want to talk to you about is the Amazon Spheres. So when I got, I got to visit the Amazon Spheres or the Spheres as they're known when I visited Seattle. Now the Spheres were built between February, 2013 and January, 2018. Okay. Now, so that's, you know, almost five years. The building itself though, uh, which comprises of three big glass domes that was completed in December 2016 and then from December 2016 to January 2018 the garden inside the building was established. Now I've pulled this from the Spheres website in terms of explaining what the Spheres are. So the Spheres are a place where employees can think and work differently surrounded by plants. So the Spheres were actually built by the company Amazon. The Spheres are a result of innovative thinking about the character of a workplace and an extended conversation about what is typically missing from urban offices, a direct link to nature. The spheres are home to more than 40,000 plants from the cloud forest regions of over 30 countries. Now, again, why am I mentioning a, you know, three glass domes filled with gardens built by Amazon for their staff? You know, what does this have to do with your home? Well, again, I think there's lots of inspiration that you can draw on when thinking about your home and how you go about renovating and building it. And in particular, how you create the green spaces in and around it and how important it is to figure out how you'll include them no matter the size of your project. Because what I'm seeing with these projects is the evidence in place for companies to invest, you know, for Amazon to invest this kind of uh, money and effort into building this type of space for their team and their staff because they understood how important it was for their well-being. You know, we're in our homes every day. So I'm going to explain a bit more about the research behind this so that you can see that it is really crucial for you to think about how you're going to get this connection to nature in your home and how you can include it, whatever the size of your project. You know, it, for both the Highline and the Spheres, it's super significant that landscape design and planting and green spaces, you know, they're essential to the quality and the feel of these structures and spaces. All right. And so we really want to tap into that feeling of relaxation, of slowness, of haven, of enjoyment. And this is what your garden can offer your home, no matter how big or small it is. Now, I've shared a few posts lately on Undercover Architects Facebook and Instagram accounts, you know, projects that have shown a lovingly curated collection of indoor plants. That can make a massive difference to the feel and function of a space in someone's home. And that can be achieved anywhere for very little budget. So let me tell you a little bit more about the spheres. I actually got access to them because I was the friend I was staying with used to work for Amazon. They do open the spheres up uh, to the public a couple of times a month. So if it's something you want to do, if, if you're heading to Seattle, then check out the Spheres website so you can plan your trip and um, and 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 try and get in there. Now I'm also going to pop some photographs on the blog uh, because these buildings they seriously need to be seen to be believed. And uh, but I'm I'm going to describe the experience for you so you see if you can picture it. Now as you actually approach the Spheres, you're walking through the winding streets of the city and you're not winding; they're not they're pretty straight Seattle streets. So you're walking through Seattle streets. Uh, and and your you know big tall towers around you and you then see these glass domes looking like nothing else around them you know they're really notable and as you get closer because they're fully transparent you can see the greenery inside them and just the scale of the greenery they actually had to test these 
that the insides would get enough sunlight. Seattle's not a particularly warm or sunny place, you know, a lot of the year. And so they actually built a test greenhouse to try out different glass types, temperatures and sunlight penetration before they committed to the materials that they chose for the spheres themselves so that they'd make sure that the plants would get enough sunlight to survive. Now, as you enter the bottom level, you actually go down and then into a darkened space. There's a security sign in and then you move through these turnstiles and then you step into the full volume of the dome. You go up a winding staircase and you're moving alongside this vertical garden that so all you're seeing is just greenery get revealed to you. It's quite astounding. And that that green wall that you're walking alongside, that vertical garden, it extends up 65 feet. So approximately, you know, 22 metres. The overall height of the dome and its tallest point is 90 feet, so 30 metres. So we're talking big space, you know, big volume, transparent glass dome, you know, panels and um, lots and lots of greenery. There's several floors of cafes and of meeting rooms. There's walkways that connect it all, little gathering spaces. You know, everything seems to pivot around the greenery and you literally feel like you're walking through a tropical garden all the time. And you're looking outside to city buildings and roads and things like that. And you can hear running water. And every so often a mist fires off um, the vertical garden to um, to cool down the air and to, and to keep it humid and to water it. And there's just so much sunlight. It's amazing. Now, I didn't know a lot about the spheres before I visited, but I surmised that Amazon had done a lot of research about how important a connection with nature is and how providing a space where their staff could go and meet and work in and, you know, be away from their desks um, in a space like this would actually enhance creativity and productivity overall and that it would impact company culture in a really positive way. And, and since returning, I've actually done some reading about the why behind, you know, Amazon creating this space and making this investment. And I found this great article and I'll pop the link in the show notes, but I I want to read you an extract from it because I think it's really relatable to our homes. So this was written in the Seattle Weekly by Kilton Sears and it was written in May 2016. So that was about, you know, it was quite a bit before the um, the project actually opened but by that stage the plants were all being installed and established and so the article says the Amazon spheres are the latest local manifestation of a fascinating new design approach, biophilic and biomimetic architecture. So Kelton continues, Biophilia is the name of a seminal 1984 book by E.O. Wilson, a biologist with a specialty in ants. In Biophilia, Wilson posits the biophilia hypothesis, which states that subconsciously humans have evolved a deep connection with an affinity for natural systems and life forms. And biophilia it literally means the love of life, which I just I think is awesome. Now, in turn, the emerging field of biophilic design seeks to connect humanity with nature through the built environment. And this can be as dramatic as cladding the entire exterior of a building with foliage or as simple as installing a small garden in the lobby. The approach has been most popular in hospitals thanks to a scientific study that was able to quantify the medical benefits of biophilia, so of having this connection with nature. The study actually showed that patients recovering from surgery did so quicker and required less pain medication when they could see trees out their window than they did when all they could see was a brick wall. Okay, Now, that study, I tracked down a synopsis of it, and I'm going to pop it in um, the show notes if you do want to read more about how they ran that study. You know, I actually think that we 
we we subconsciously understand this need for connection with the natural environment. We generally know that we feel better when we spend time in nature and we connect with it. I love that there's now this movement and scientific evidence that's really growing. We're seeing this a lot in big public buildings. And I think that if we can think about how we do this in our homes, it will really help enhance just what a restorative place they are for us every day. So head over to the blog. You can see images of the spheres. You know, there were these gorgeous sitting areas that they projected off the central stair and ramp at several places. There was this space called the bird's nest, which was just amazing. It was a semi-enclosed meeting area that projected out into the void of the dome, like right up at the top, like a bird's nest does. And it literally looked like a bird's nest. Um, there were smaller zones where you could sit at your desk and you could use your laptop and you could then use a wheel to adjust a panel that was above you so that you could get the right shade for that time of the day. And everything felt connected to the garden on every level. Now there's a couple of things that I specifically want to mention to think about uh, when it comes to the spheres that could inspire you for your new home or renovation as well. So one is the impact of volume. You know I've spoken about this in more detail on another episode of the podcast so I'm going to pop a link in the show notes for that episode too. But volume is a key way to create spaciousness in your home without having to increase the floor plan size of your home. Many homeowners think you know two-dimensionally about their floor plan. They're arranging boxes to get you know rooms right and sort of connecting squares and rectangles together to get the floor plan to work and then they pop a flat ceiling over it. You know consider how the volume will really change the way that your space feels in size overall and and the and the and how how it helps you feel as well another um, significant factor was the impact of natural light and again I've spoken so much about this so there's a whole season one is all about you know thinking about orientation and managing natural light if you do want to include indoor plants or even have green space growing within your home natural light's going to be really critical to you getting that to work okay so Think about that in your design early so that you can maximise its potential. Now, again, there's loads more that I could mention. Head to the blog, check out the photos, check out the extra resources and links there if you are interested, and you can uh, look for inspiration yourself, all right? Now, it may seem weird that I've spent two episodes talking about a restaurant, an urban park, and an Amazon staff facility. (laughs) Um, when this podcast is all about designing, building or renovating your family home. My hope is that it shows you that design inspiration is all around us. And when we get curious and we watch how we and others use and interact with spaces and places, it can give us great ideas for our homes. It can help us see what we can resonate with, what makes us feel great, what we do and what we don't enjoy, and how we can make our homes fun and relaxing, enjoyable and beautiful places to live. Now, head to the show notes, grab all the links and resources there. And I've got one last favor that I'd love to ask you before I go. I actually discovered last week when I was hunting around iTunes that reviews on iTunes are all country based. So what I mean by this is that Americans can't see all the reviews uh, from Australia. An American friend of mine actually said, you've only got... um, 11 reviews on your podcast. And I said, no, I've got like 77. And what I found was that I had 11 in the States. I had 77 in Australia. I had some in Canada. I had some in the UK. Um, and, you know, I there were reviews that I hadn't even read because I didn't know that this was how iTunes structured 
all of its information and I had my region set to Australia. So I want to extend a massive, massive thank you to those of you who have left reviews. It's such a buzz to read how much this podcast is helping you in all of your different locations and scenarios. I'd also love to request, please, that if you are a regular listener to this podcast and you enjoy it and you haven't left a review, please do so wherever you are located. The reviews, they're seriously what tell iTunes to show this podcast to others. It's just what trips the algorithm and uh, they don't make it easy for you to leave a review. I know that, um, but I'd be so grateful if you could leave a note on how this podcast has helped you so that others can see if it will be useful to them. Okay, now that was a chunky episode, wasn't it? All right. Next week on on the podcast, I actually have a guest. So I'm going to be talking to Luke Chant of Hot Wire Heating. Luke's going to be talking to us all about underfloor heating. Now, I know this is a topic of great interest to many homeowners that I work with uh, and, you know, that are in the UA community thinking about how you can make your homes more comfortable. So Luke's going to be answering all my questions and sharing really useful tips to help you if you've been considering whether it's worthwhile and how you'll include underfloor heating in your future home. So until next time, bye.